This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Definitely in the mainstream media, I'd say it really bothers me because either there's no representation or if there is, it's, you know, it's some kind of a side story. Like this is the oppressed, yeah, whatever woman or she's having problems with her family and this or that. I don't see anything positive at all because yes, we have our problems, but they're not all negative and they're not all stereotypical. Kulsum Abdullah is a data scientist. She has a PhD and master's in electrical and computer engineering. And if this wasn't enough, she's also a Pakistani-American weightlifter who competed in the 2011 World Championship. She represents Pakistan for worlds and U.S. for national-level tournaments. She made history by being the first fully-covered Muslim woman contestant. I am super excited to talk to Kulsum today. Welcome, Kulsum. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you, Saadia, for having me. So we will unpack all of this. We will talk about your work, your championship, your identity. But first, I just want to talk a little bit about your childhood. We'll start there. You were born in Kansas City and you grew up in a town in Florida, right? Correct. What was it like growing up there in the 80s as a minority kid? It was definitely an interesting experience. One thing I can say for a small town is the advantage is though there's not as much diversity uh, is that you're going to have stronger bonds with people because you don't live so far away. It doesn't take so long to drive, let's say. So we had more friendships and of the minorities that were there, uh, the few families, uh, we were very close and we're basically lifelong um, friends. Um, as far as the situation there, I mean, fortunately, we didn't have to deal with some things that others have had to deal with, such as any sort of a violence or, you know, explicit prejudice. I mean, sometimes there would be what you could call some microaggressions where if people weren't aware of, let's say, the world or had some ignorance uh, or stereotypical assumptions, that's what some people would have. Uh, generally, over time, when they would get to know us, uh, they would realize that those uh, stereotypes are not true. And this was before September 11th, 2001. So I think that time before that was was different in a sense, where after that point, which where I was not in the town anymore, I was then in my um, graduate studies, is that's when I think things changed as far as uh, the perceptions people had about, say, Muslims and minorities, and I guess how they responded. 
And Kusum, did it change the relationships that you already had with the community and friends that you had when you were growing up? 9-11, did it change those relationships as well? So I would say of those that were our friends, whether or not they were part of the minority community, because I'm assuming because we'd known them for so long and we grew up together, most of them, I would say, did not, say, associate us with say, the events of September 11th, or they knew that not, they didn't feel that they want to stereotype everybody into a, you know, this large group. Of course, there are going to be some that when that happened, they could still have some, you know, viewpoint that maybe there is, you know, something wrong with Muslims or they're out to get us. But I'd say for the most part, those that knew us, uh, we were friends with us, they didn't have those sentiments. And I will talk about your graduate studies and atmosphere at the university. But before that, I want to talk a little bit about um, your childhood as you were growing up. What was your relationship with sports? Were you active? Were you athletic uh, when you were growing up? Growing up, I'd say I was not formally involved in any sport. I was, I guess you say I was more of this quote-unquote studious type <laughs> um you know I was very much into reading and more introverted so to speak you know very much into math and science as well and I I think as far as activity I had that interest there but I didn't actually have um say a formal outlet and I think two of the main reasons for that is one that because I was growing up in a smaller town there weren't as many, you know, as much I was exposed to or options. And then I think the other part was not having, say, role models or because of my, you know, dress and whatnot that I might not be able to be a, you know, someone in sports. Uh, so it wasn't until later in life that I actually became athletic. And you said that you were studious growing up. And I was, as I was prepping for the interview, I was uh, reading about you and um, I read somewhere that you were curious as a child. You were always like curious to explore things. Is that something that your parents encouraged? Your parents are from Pakistan, right? Yes. Where in Pakistan are they from? Right, so they're uh, in what's now called the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa region, um, used to be formerly called Northwest Frontier Province. So a lot of my family is still there as well. The The larger city would be Peshawar, and they were in um, communities surrounding that area. That's interesting because my parents are from there as well. So do you speak Pashto? So my answer is yes. It's I wish it was much better. Um, I have much better listening skills than I do confidence and speaking skills. Oh. Um, but I'd say yes. Yeah, you and I could practically have this conversation in Pashto and I could just add captions, right? <laughs> so, yeah, except mine, my, some people might think that I'm in elementary school. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> so um, talking about your interest in education and engineering and sciences, um, as I was asking you, was that something that your parents encouraged you to do? Let's see. Thinking back, I think, well, with my father, um, he was basically just encouraging to do what I'm, what I'm interested in. Uh, but I, I mean, I think coming from that time and culture, there was also this sense of, 
wanting to feel some safety. So, Hmm. so for example, you know, I had briefly thought about being a photojournalist. Okay. (laughs) And so my, I mean, it wasn't where my father was necessarily discouraging me from doing it, but he just said, you know, just think about the risks of it. If this is something you really have a passion for or not, um, here are the risks of doing that. Um, you know, like going out in the field and such, but if you don't have that, you know, desire or passion, then those challenges are going to be hard. Uh, so that's one example. So I ultimately realized I, I really liked, you know, math and computers and these things. So then, um, that's why I got into that field. I did have some other extended family members who wondered if that was a great choice because at the time, uh, most women were doing things like teaching or being a doctor. I believe there was another option where you, if you were going to have a family, um, it would be more conducive to that. So at the time, I guess it was it was a little bit different for wanting to be entered. interested in engineering. And I was going to ask you this. We don't see many girls and women in STEM programs. It's changing now a little, Mm -hmm. but it's it's fairly uncommon, right? So not only were you breaking stereotype when it came to sports, which we will talk about later, uh, you were also in a way breaking stereotypes with the kind of education that you were pursuing. Why do you think we don't see many girls and women in STEM programs and what is the situation now versus when, when you were doing your master's? I think the situation is much better now than before, hmm. but uh, there's definitely still room for improvement. It's, and it's still an issue that needs to be, I think people need to be aware and to discuss. I guess looking in back and the situation now, I think uh, some of the reasons that women don't go into it, I think mostly has to do with environmental reasons Hmm. uh, because I know there's this I guess idea that you know biologically that men are supposed to be one way women are more inclined to be another way and that we have certain roles and certain um, types of work that we're supposed to be good at so say the math and the science is supposed to be considered more male brained uh, and things that are more, you know, nurturing and uh, more female related, you know, you get, you get encouraged to go into that kind of work, regardless of what your internal interests might be. So I think that's one reason. And then the other reason is even if say, a female finds out she does, she has interests in a technical area, that she might be facing challenges in school, if she doesn't have encouragement, or if she's facing prejudice uh, or any gender discrimination, then that could either make you want to to forget it and give up, or just have a hard time and lack self confidence. Uh, so I think that's another reason why as well. This is so interesting, and I was going to ask you about these things first, as you mentioned this this theory that biologically male and female brains are different. It has been mm-hmm. debunked though, right? I was doing some research on it and it seems that there is no evidence to prove that. And on right. top of that, as you said, there is an inherent bias. I've seen that with my kids, both girls, and one of them is doing like 
great in math, but she always says, I'm not good at it. And I think mm-hmm. that happens very early on when educators in school, it's an unconscious, implicit bias, but they encourage girls to do more reading and writing and drawing. And boys are like encouraged to do more science and math work, uh, which, again, is not something that has been proven to work. And growing up, if I compared that to my experience, I always liked math. And I never thought that as a woman or as a girl, like as a girl growing up, I couldn't do math. But I see that with my daughter, despite the fact that she's doing brilliantly well in it, she still doubts herself. And I think that's just sad when I see that. No, the same for me. I, you know, I recall when I was growing up, interestingly, being in that smaller town, I actually didn't have exposure to there being gender discrimination in these fields, like say math and science. And it wasn't until I got into um, the university as that's when I first started getting exposed to these issues. And then, you know, having confidence issues or believing that I, you know, I knew enough or that I had to keep learning or that I lacked knowledge. And it can definitely affect you, even if it's not something someone directly, you know, tries to discourage you. But it's definitely there, I agree. And it's also the idea that, you know, intellectual skills, even like spatial skills, verbal skills, Mm -hmm. they are acquired, right? So if we believe that they are acquired, then everybody has the ability to hone those skills and acquire them versus somebody being born with it or being genetically predisposed to have those skill sets, right? Yes, no, I agree. And I I think it can even be vice versa, say for males that, you know, this quote unquote, having a feminine side, they're not just, they're not encouraged to show their emotions, or they can't, they can't cry, or, you know, these things that are considered feminine. And that's all, you know, environmental, cultural, I think. And I see that so much around me, like my friends who have boys, especially Mm -hmm. they're like my female friends who have like their husbands would always tell their boys, "Um, you're not supposed Mm -hmm. to cry. Um, Boys don't cry. And it really bothers me as a, a feminist and as somebody who believes in, as you said, that there is a feminine side to boys as well. Um, mm-hmm. It's It just has such profound, it can have such profound impact later in life, which we don't realize when we are telling our kids that. No, I agree. Yeah. And then, you know, kids, they definitely absorb these things. Absolutely. So I want to pivot a little and talk about Mm -hmm. sports. So you started weightlifting because you wanted to focus on strength and endurance. So it wasn't like Mm -hmm. you wanted to compete in Olympics, right? But what led you on to the journey to becoming the first Muslim weightlifter? But actually, I guess going back, I'd say it started in graduate school, Hmm. of course, unintentionally. I had thought about it before. You know, I, I knew that I wanted to do something some kind of an activity. And I had then thought about, say, martial arts, because I thought, well, that's a skill I'd like to learn. And then also, in addition to learning a skill, I'd be, uh, you know, doing some kind of a physical activity. And so it was in graduate school, I, a friend of mine had a colleague from Germany, and she was on the national jujitsu team, and um, she was taking a taekwondo class. 
And so she encouraged me to take that class with her. And the instructor was also, you know, accommodating. He, I thought there might be concerns with how I was dressed, but he, you know, he didn't really care and hmm. just said, whatever I was comfortable with, that's fine. So I, yeah, and I, and it was, there's already that jacket and pant, which I was fine with wearing for the class. So that's how I started a physical activity. Then during that Taekwondo class, I thought I would like to, um, to supplement it with muscular endurance for the actual class. And that's when I got into just general, some general strength training. But I do remember at the time, it was very hard to find uh, information that was catered to women because most things would tell you, you know, don't pick up more than one or three pounds. You're going to get big or this is dangerous. Mm. And so I, you know, I thought, I don't have time for this. Like, <laughs> I'm so busy. I need to max, you know, use my time very efficiently with whatever I'm doing. Um, so I fortunately did find one resource at the time. And then it was after I graduated from graduate school that I wanted to keep continuing you know, doing some kind of activity. And so I learned about Olympic weightlifting and they were um, teaching it at a, at that time, a CrossFit gym, which it was, these two things are not popular at the time at all. So there were many places um, that had this, but I, you know, I, I started going there for my exercise doing this. Hmm. And then there was when they encouraged me to, uh, to compete at a local competition and it took them a while because I never saw myself as a competitor, but then I finally did it. And that's how you could say the whole thing started. But then you were discouraged, right, to participate at, I think it was in championship, USA weightlifting championship without yes. wearing a customary singlet, which would leave your arms and legs exposed, right? And right. Um, to just like let everybody know, listeners know that um, International Weightlifting Federation created this rule so that judges would be able to see when elbows and knees are, were locked out. And mm-hmm. honestly, I don't know any of this. I was doing research, so I I. Obviously, I was in for like, you know, learning this as I was reading more about you. And apparently it helps them determine if a lift is successful. But A, that is not the case. You can make a determination without that as well. Right. Right. And then the rule was amended for you. Can you tell us the whole story? What happened? How you were able to do that? Uh, Sure. So at first, you know, that argument was given that this is. Uh, part of the International Weightlifting Federation um, rules is you have to wear that singlet. And I remembered I couldn't get any help from, say, civil rights groups or government organizations because they had said that, well, and this was the fact, was um, USA Weightlifting was under the Olympic Committee, which is a private organization. So you'd have to do something like a lawsuit. And I, you know, I didn't have that, those resources or to do something like that in the time. So a press release was issued by CARE, which is the Council on American Islamic Relations. And they, they just said, well, they asked me if you want, we could issue a press release and just see what happens. And I thought, I don't have anything else to lose because well, I mean, they could just say no again, you know? Mm. So I thought, why not? And so when that press release was issued, the media picked it up very quickly and I think a few of the reasons are that one, as I had already been competing locally and there wasn't a problem 
with how I was dressed up and I had this record. And so when they saw this, they thought, or they were wondering, well, why was she able to compete before? And now they're not letting her compete. And, you know, they're giving these reasons because, you know, as far as the knees, people will wear knee sleeves and you can tell if someone is not bending their knees without them needing to be exposed. And, you know, similarly for the arms or the elbows, is they were able to determine that my arm was locked out. And then their other concern that some specific weightlifters had is uh, is technical reason that in powerlifting, some of them wear a compression bodysuit, and that can give an advantage. But again, in my case, I'm not wearing a compression, you know, bodysuit to try to give me an advantage. It's just, right. you know, cotton or whatever. Um you know, fabric. So because the media then picked it up and spread it around, then it went, the word went to the International Lifting Federation and then they agreed to to talk about it. And I, you know, I presented the argument about why it would be an advantage for them to consider this because one, I mean, you're going to include more people in the sport and you'll also have more spectators of the sport and also you'd be more, you know, it's just that there's a benefit either way if, if you include more people. So they'd agreed and then they changed the ruling. Um, and when that happened, it had to trickle down to the national levels below them. Do you think there was one argument in your presentation that must have resonated uh, with them or that was powerful enough to convince them? to do this? Was there one thing that really stood out to them or that you think may have stood out to them? Maybe, and this is my guess, is it's possible that they just saw that I was already doing this activity and that they just had never considered opening that up or that possibility that maybe there's some women or whoever that might be more comfortable having a covering and that it's not going to, you know, cause any technical problems or safety issues. And I thought well, we should go ahead and include it. So I'm thinking it's mo- mostly a, fa- a matter of they just never thought about doing it before. <laughs> so you are a trailblazer because when you did that, obviously it opened doors for other women, Muslim women especially, um, to participate in the sport itself. And mm-hmm. what was the feeling like? And did you get any negative uh, responses or reaction? I'd say fortunately it was mostly positive. And if it was negative, it was going to be from, say, um, some of those that were in weightlifting that they didn't want to see any sort of change happen and they felt threatened about it. And some people who had been in, in the weightlifting for a very long time but again, fortunately, that was a minority of people. Um, and then as far as the general public, I'd say, again, most were positive about it. If there were any kind of negative comments, it was either going to be people saying, oh, you know, the Taliban's going to take over sports or, <laughs> you know, things like that or Sharia law is going to happen and you know it's going to change the world (laughs) and then on the other hand you had a few people saying oh she's let's say from the religious cultural piece is um she's trying to or she's lifting stuff in front of men or whatever you know so fortunately that was kind of 
fringe fringe groups and, uh, and then maybe most just didn't care <laughs> <laughs> and you compete like so you represent Pakistan and the US both right and that is because you have dual nationality how has that informed your work and what were some of the challenges along the way like representing two countries at the same time uh, well for the USA just competing at those competitions that was the first thing the, hmm. the matter of the uniform and being allowed so then when the ruling happened, that's, or when the ruling got changed, those, those were the first competitions I went to were the, um, the USA national competitions. And so I almost would say the first one was the most challenging just because uh, I had to rush. It was happening in two weeks after the ruling. Um, I had no idea what to expect. I had never even been a, a, to a national competition and I, I had no idea what how people were going to deal deal with me or respond to me. So that was one challenge. But after that, it became much easier. I think people just got used to this idea and realized that it didn't change the world. Mm. You know, the sport wasn't going to be the same. It was fine. And then I had gotten used to competing. And then for representing Pakistan, I'd say there was no challenge with that. there was already a Pakistan weightlifting federation and they, at that time they didn't have active competitors. Um, in the past they had had men competing, but it's not, it was not a situation where they weren't allowing women to compete. It's just no woman was interested, even those that were relatives of the men. Um, I think they had tried to encourage say their daughters, but no one wanted to do it. Uh, so that was just a matter of say i'm just doing this just to get something started not necessarily get a medal but i you know i still went just to do my best and um you know looked forward to the next generation continuing do you see more gender diversity when it comes to weightlifting in like the us versus i mean pakistan as you said there weren't many women competing mm-hmm. A, why do you think that is the case? We see women in other sports in Pakistan. We see them in cricket. There's a, a women's cricket team now and many others. And B, do you see it more in the U.S. or is it the same or similar here? Well, now I would say that in the U.S. weightlifting is more popular, but, but there probably is still, I believe, a gender disparity. There's going to be more men doing it than women. But with weightlifting itself, They, women actually didn't start competing at the uh, international and Olympic level uh, until the Sydney Olympics, which wasn't too long ago. Before that, it was only men competing. Um, so that was the case for all countries. And then after that, women's, the women started participating more. So there's that issue, I'd say, where there was already this universal gender disparity. Mm. And then... with the United States, I think part of it was just weightlifting itself was just not a popular sport. It's not like you know, football or basketball. And then it started to become more popular with the CrossFit movement. And so then maybe there would be women doing it, but not as many. Um, and then I'm going to say with Pakistan, similarly, that I just think people don't know about weightlifting. It's not popular, like say cricket and some of the other sports. And then because it's already not popular, you're not going to even have that many men, yeah. let alone women doing it. And then I think uh, women doing a sport is already a barrier to cross. 
uh, and then let alone, okay, weightlifting, you know, it sounds very masculine or, you know, that's something, why would a woman do that? I think that's another. Yeah. Again, I think we are just putting men and women in boxes and just putting them in those silos. Right. uh, Kulsum, apart from being, you know, a role model for especially Muslim women and encouraging them to participate, uh, is there anything else that you're doing or you have done to create awareness about the sport itself? As far as weightlifting? Yeah. Yeah. So for specifically weightlifting, I would say I don't have, you know, targeted activities for that. Usually for that, I'll just share my own personal story and my journey. And then I do try to network or other women will reach out to me if they're, say, in a strength-based sport or if some of them will contact me to see about getting into it. But as far as, say, in the USA and Pakistan, I haven't thought of an idea of what I could do Hmm. besides what I'm already doing right now. Um, But there are some general organizations that are trying to just encourage sports at various, you know, various types and levels. Uh, So it's something I've thought about, but I'm not sure because I'm not, um, I wouldn't consider myself a coach where I could work one-on-one with someone and come up with a training program Um, But maybe at a broader level, you know, topics like having the facilities and the coaching and then just the benefits of strength training, whether or not you want to do weightlifting of the sport or you want to do another sport um, or just general fitness and health, your life, that might be something I could consider in the future. And what does your family think about all of this? Because you're doing so many things. You have a full-time job. You're a data scientist and you're doing weightlifting. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you manage all of this. Uh, what What do your parents and do you have siblings? I do. So what, what do they yes. think? So, yeah, I, I mean, it is busy and there's going to be sacrifices to my time. Like I'm not going to be... You know, I don't have as much social activities or I don't get to watch all of the TV shows that people are watching. Oh, for example, you know, things (laughs) like that. Right. So but, you know, I I, um, voluntarily make the choice to do it because I know, let's say for lifting, um, I do it for my health and I can notice when I don't do it that I'm I feel like I'm missing something. I don't my sleep is not the same, et cetera. So. I think that's one piece that keeps me motivated to give time to the weightlifting. Yeah, I mean, as far as work, you know, it's something I like, this area of machine learning data science. But yeah, I'd say they're happy for me. You know, of course, they want me to make sure I take care of myself, take breaks. But yeah, I guess they're fine. You were also featured in a documentary, The Pakistan Four, Four Strangers in America redefining the narrative of being a Pakistani Muslim woman. It was released in 2014. How was that experience? Yes, as far as, say, a documentary. um, So there was a difference from, say, regular news reports. Those tend to be um, shorter. Or even if it's, say, the human interest story that's longer. I'd have somebody with me at a competition for, say, two days or so. Um, That would be the longest duration. But as far as with this documentary, it was over a week. Mm. So that was a longer period of time than I've had, you know, needing to talk to somebody and having content filmed. So that was a different experience. 
I guess, not, I mean, I don't, I won't compare it to reality TV, but just having that presence of someone wanting, you know, recording your wife was interesting. If that uh, helps <laughs> with the explaining the experience. How do you think media narrates our stories, like stories of Muslim women living in the U.S. or um, who, were, who were born and raised here and even mm-hmm. like immigrant Muslim women? Um, do you wish to see any changes to that? What are some of the things that bother you? Because th- there's a mm-hmm. lot that bothers me. Yes. Uh, but I just wanted to get your perspective on it. Oh, sure. Definitely in the mainstream media, I'd say it really bothers me because either there's no representation Or if there is, it's, you know, it's some kind of a side story, like this is the oppressed, yeah, whatever woman or she's having problems with her family and this or that. I don't see anything positive at all because, yes, we have our problems, but they're not all negative and they're not all stereotypical. And so I what I do like that I'm seeing is more women are starting to write their own stories. Uh, so that's great. But they're still not getting the attention or the, um, say, getting their stories published or made into movies or, you know, shows or et cetera, which is disappointing. And then what I would say another thing that really makes me mad is that there have been some men who have had their, you know, stories publicized or, let's say, and put into movies. And what makes me mad, well, what makes me mad is that Yes, that's great that they're sharing their story, but their stories are the type like, for example, the stereotypical one where um, they meet some white woman and then it's against what their family wants <laughs> and their family wants, you know, this guy to marry the whatever they see Muslim woman. But all those they see Muslim women, they're just so oppressed and cultural and this and that. And there's that kind of cartoonish view of those women absolutely right and that makes me so mad and then (laughs) and then supposed to be oh it's all happy in the end because he ends up with you know the white lady and I'm like you know what if that was a real story and it was me I'd say guess what dude I'm not interested in you because you're a loser (laughs) you know it's not like oh gee (laughs) this is this is so true and I've seen that and it's not just men I think it's Um, women as well, women of color. And I was at this um, event organized by Plan International um, uh, the other day. And this this subject was brought up because many a times you even see um, women of color who promote those or perpetuate those stereotypes about their families and, you know, parents having this particular accent and uh, not being aware of, you know, the world around them. And and they have unfortunately become successful by cashing in on those stereotypical um, stories, which is sad. And it, it really bothers me as well, because as as a Muslim woman, I, I grew up pretty confident. I've seen other Muslim women around me who are extremely confident, they are not depressed, and I'm not discounting those who are. It's not that I am discounting their narratives, but as you said, it seems that there is just one dimension to what a Muslim woman looks like. And right. and that's absolutely unacceptable and it's wrong. And and again, as you said about Muslim men, um, as you said, the stories, we have to rewrite those narratives and we have to be more realistic in narrating our stories. 
Right. Because getting the whole picture that we're not just, we just don't have one situation and we're not just one type of, pre- of people that we all have so many different backgrounds and experiences and challenges, you know, positives and negatives. And you said that only a very narrow certain type are getting picked up and made popular by the mainstream public. Exactly. So, Kulsum, given what's going on right now in this moment, how, how would you describe America? Ooh, that's a tough question. It's hard to narrow down. I, I feel like it's just there's so many, it's, you know, so many things happening. It's not just that there's turmoil and racism, but there's people fighting that and they're the opposite of that. And we're all in this place together you know, trying to deal with all of this. Um, and I don't know what word to use for that. Maybe we, I could say we're just still in a state of um, fluctuation, maybe. Yeah, that makes Change. sense. Yeah, we're, we're, I think we are going through. I think, as you said, I think America is going through identity crisis of its own right mm-hmm. now. But this was wonderful. I had so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for being on my show. Oh, sure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Come back next week when we have another amazing story. In the meantime, check out our website. It's immigrantlypod.com. We have a GoFundMe. We have Twitter, Instagram. All the information is on our website. Keep listening. Keep sharing. Keep sharing.